and welcome to episode 987 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by our Patreon supporters in the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindberg of The Ringer, joined as always by Sam Miller of ESPN. Hello. I like that you sort of started with your like uh, your high energy ringer voice, and then <laughs> midway through you sort of realized where you were and you dropped an octave. <laughs> oh, it's just all effectively wild. <laughs> Done nine hundred eighty something episodes of those. Want some banter? Or? Sure, yeah. All right, I got I got a few. I got a bunch. Okay. So I am reading Vec is in Rec. Oh, great. About I don't know third of the way through. And uh, two things that I wanted to bring up. One is particularly good. So uh, he's talking about the two players that he had that sort of found second careers in the game as clowns. Uh, oh, yeah, right. So one is Max Patkin, who uh, yeah, was like... Clown princes a, of baseball. Exactly. So Max Patkin was like a literal clown. Jackie Price was more of a, uh, almost a baseball acrobat. Like he could hit baseballs upside down or swinging from a trapeze, or he could throw two baseballs at the same time in different directions and all sorts of crazy things like that. But what stopped me is this. Okay. So this is from, uh, this is about Jackie Price. I was so impressed with Price from the first that I tried to get Detroit to hire him to perform in the 1945 World Series. Hank Oana, whom I had sold to the Tigers, had got them into the series with his pinch hitting, and I was naive enough to think that entitled me to ask a favor. Instead, the Tigers hired Al Skacht, known as, quote, the Clown Prince of Baseball. Baseball is soaked in tradition. I might even say it is pickled in tradition. And one of the most inviolate of these traditions seems to be that baseball humor has to be unfunny. Ah, oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> this has enabled Skacked to last a long time. <laughs> uh, so, Bill Beck, way ahead of me on I that. Saying. He's a, He's got his finger on the pulse <laughs> He really does. years ago. <laughs> there are many, many uh, sections of this book that if I wanted to, I could read and play the who is he talking about game and make you guess uh, Mark Mulder again. <laughs> Um, the second section, uh, this actually doesn't come from the book itself, but from, uh, from extra reading that I did on, on the topic. Uh, so, you know, uh, you know, of course, you know, most people, a lot of people know that, uh, one of Bill Vec's, uh, most audacious schemes was, uh, to move the fences in and out. Right. So originally he would, uh, he built, he basically built a screen, a, a, I think it was like a 60 foot tall screen, uh, because he realized that, um, the right field fence was so much shallower and his team didn't have any left-handed power hitters so he built this huge screen right and then he got more and more nuanced with the way he used it rolling it to different parts of the field rolling it um i guess in and out and then and then finally uh, i will start reading any given day it might be in place or not depending on the batting strength of the opposing team there was no rule against that activity as such but Vec then took it to an extreme rolling it out when the opponents batted and pulling it back when the brewers batted Vec reported that the league passed a rule against it the very next day. And we bring, I, I think we've, I, if, I don't know if we've ever brought this up, but when people ask us, well, why doesn't a team just do X to sort of take advantage of some loophole? We sometimes say, well, because the next day the league would close the loophole. They, yeah. uh, and, and this is a sort of an example of how that would happen. They would just say, well, that's no fun. Uh, and they'd close it. And so you might get a day out of it and everybody would hate you. But however, this thing that I was reading goes on. However, Extensive research by two members of the Society for American Baseball Research suggests that this story was made up by Vec. Really? The huh. two researchers could not find any references to a movable fence or any reference to the gear required for a movable fence to work. So, can I keep reading this book? Do, do you 
Do you believe that he is making up whole cloth stories uh, of this significance? Hmm. I don't know. Good story, though. But uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'd, I'd like to think that most of it is truthful. That's it. You're the expert. You're the world's foremost expert on this book. <laughs> well, not exactly. That's true. I, haven't, I guess... uh, haven't done any historical research to support it. Do you recommend I keep reading if I inform you that this book is all lies and hearsay? <laughs> it's a fun read regardless, I think. It is a fun read. It's a great book. I'm enjoying mm-hmm. it a lot. Uh, t- two things that I learned not from this book, but that I have recently come across. One is that Willie Mays uh, was known to his friends and associates as Buck. Uh, does it does it make you think any differently of Willie Mays to think of him as Buck Mays all the time? Like, if he had gone by Buck Mays, would his career be looked at any differently, do you suppose? Buck Mays. No, I think he could have been a Buck. Buck Mays. Yeah, Buck Mays. <laughs> if if it had always been Buck Mays, then we would have said, sure, imagine if he had been named Willie. <laughs> okay, I don't, I think that you might be right. I think you might be wrong. I think it might have been a hindrance. I, I think less of Buck Mays than I do of Willie Mays. It's a pretty baseball name. I mean, Buck, Buck Mays, it's very baseball. It is very baseball, it's true. I feel like Willie Mays might have benefited from Willie McCovey, though. It's just the two Willies, you know? <laughs> Didn't Mays predate McCovey? Sure. I don't mean like he got his start in baseball. <laughs> Because of it, but in what I feel way like did having, he benefit? <laughs> well, the two greatest players in the history of the franchise, you know, basically were both named Willie. <laughs> That's, yeah. That seems like it's, I don't know, it just feels like a killer bees sort of situation. Mm. He's pretty good at baseball, though, also. Yeah. The other thing is that when he was old, when he got very old, he would uh, not jog into the dugout in during innings that he was not scheduled to bat he would jog over to the bullpen and rest there because he uh, his, he was very old. His legs were tired. And that was uh, sort of an allowance that he uh, gave himself. Do you believe that if a player did that today, it would be seen as, as Bush? Do you think a player would be criticized for that? I don't think Bush so much as just, I, I think definitely he'd be criticized for it just for being too big for the game or too big for the team or it's big league, right? It's more big league than Bush. I oh. mean, you're in you're in the big league, so <laughs> but still, that's kind of more what it is. I think maybe if you had a Willie Mays type player, like who could get away with that today? Is there someone who could get it? Like if Ichiro did that, could he get away with that? Probably, right? I think Ichiro could. I think that that the key is that he's old. Yeah, right. A great player who is but old. But then you he's you do have certain you, perks. What about though Griffey taking naps? Yeah, well that was that was just sad. <laughs> that was I don't that wasn't so much I don't know if he was criticized I guess he was criticized for it, but it was also just sort of depressing because he was not good and he was kind of out of shape relative to he was wearing like the same uniform, he was playing for the same team, but it just drove home how different he was and how time ravages us all. And so I think that was that's like so disconnected from the team. That's that's I mean being asleep during the game that's saying I don't even care about the outcome of this game, which I think is sending a slightly different message than I care so much about the outcome that I'm going to rest myself so that I can be better in the game. What about Clemens? Correct me if I get some of these details wrong, but didn't he negotiate or was trying to negotiate that he didn't have to travel with the team all the time? Yeah, he did. 
Yeah. I mean, when he was doing the the half season deals where he'd just come back mid-year and he also had that, I didn't get the sense that it was a, a huge issue. He was on good teams doing that. Okay. Uh, all right. One last thing I learned about old-timey semi. It's not an old-timey, middle, mid-century baseball from yet a different source. The Hot Stove League. How old would you guess that term is? I mean, I've just given you the answer, but how old would you have guessed that term is? I would say first decade of the 20th century. Oh, wow. I See, now, I I wasn't aware of it until early first decade of this century. And so I would have probably guessed it was a term that came from the 80s, the 1980s. But in fact, there was a book, The Hot Stove League in 1955 by Lee Allen, and it mm. meant something totally different. I mean, it still meant the off season, but it had nothing to do with rumors or transactions or winter meetings or anything of the sort. It was, here's a summary of the book on Amazon. Before the modern era, the closest fans could get to big league action during the long winters was sitting around the hot stove in general stores and barber shops, exchanging, exchanging bits of baseball history and anecdotes from the uplifting to the unseemly. (laughs) These fascinating true stories are collected in the Hot Stove League, and they chronicle everything from the first electrically illuminated night game and Babe Ruth's legendary gluttony to such curiosities as why some of the most populous states produce the fewest major league players. So, first of all, weird sounding book. Second, different different meaning altogether. Same root, same root basically, same root word more or less, but same root idea. But uh, totally different. Yeah, didn't know that. And uh, are we going to talk about the Eaton trade? Uh, if we are, then I will save the last thing. Sure. We could talk a little bit about the Eaton trade. All right. So we'll get into winter meeting stuff. Oh, by the way, uh, AJ Ellis went to the Marlins. So I guess the mutual interest between Ellis and the Phillies was not all that strong. I never, I never bought it. <laughs> <laughs> Just trying to sell you a line of... AJ Ellis and the Phillies, but you were not buying it. All right, so the winter meetings just happened, and they really happened. Capital H, lots of things happened, and I'm very tired. I had to write about some of those things, and all of my thoughts are scattered, and I've talked about some of these things on one podcast and written about some of them also. So I don't know if there's anything you want to focus on in particular, but maybe we can start with the Chapman signing just because maybe it's the most perplexing. Like all of the other things that happened were very interesting, very juicy trades, great players changing teams, great prospects changing teams. doesn't get juicier than Chris Sale being traded for the best prospect in baseball. That's it's about the best you can do with a blockbuster, I think. I don't that never happens. The best prospect in baseball never gets traded, and it's very rare to have a player of sales caliber who is under team control for a while get traded. So obviously it happened because both of those things were happening. One of those guys would not have been traded for really any other kind of player. So it had to match up like that. Anyway, really interesting, and it's got to be fun for White Sox fans to see their team actually rebuild and get an incredible head start on doing that after years of watching the Cubs do it flawlessly while the White Sox just sort of floundered around. All of a sudden, the White Sox have a really good farm system in like two moves, so pretty impressive. I thought they did a nice job, but those are just kind of moves that make sense. A team that needs to get better right now got a really good player who makes them a lot better and team that needs to rebuild got players who helps them rebuild. 
help them rebuild. So the Chapman signing is maybe the most perplexing major move that happened. I don't know whether you agree, but Yankees signed Aroldis Chapman for five years and $86 million. And that includes an opt-out after the first three years and a no-trade clause for the first three years that then becomes a limited no-trade clause after that. So this is a obviously a record-breaking contract. It's the most money ever given to a reliever, reliever easily beating out Mark Melanson, who set the record a couple of days ago. And before that, it was Papelbon. And we haven't seen a five-year deal for a free agent reliever since BJ Ryan, which didn't work out so well. So I guess there's the money. There's the is Aroldis Chapman or any reliever worth this much money? Does it make sense for the Yankees to be the team bidding on this guy? Do we think that he'll be used any differently or is he going to be exactly the same? Lots of questions. Do you have any reactions to this signing? I haven't done the inflation math, but it feels to me that the cost of closers sort of stalled out for a while. Yeah, and, I think it and so really, if you were to, my guess is if you were to chart the, the trajectory of baseball salaries and closer salaries, that Chapman getting $86 million would not look out of place, only looks out of place because over the last few years, all the extremely best closers have been pre-free agency under club control. And uh, there hasn't really been, there hasn't really been, has there been... I can't think of the last time that like a top three or four closer was hit free agency. And so maybe you can think of one. <sighs> yeah. So the Papelbon deal was five years ago. That was right. the end of 2011. So that seems like a long time for a biggest contract to last. I mean, maybe it's not. Maybe like the A-Rod deal lasted a while, I guess. Right. So maybe it's not. But yeah, I'm trying to think of... Who were the big ones? I mean, obviously, there haven't been any really huge ones, or there probably would have been someone getting that much money. So, well, I, yeah. And I mean, it, it's not that elite closers have been signing for less than Papelbon, uh, it's that they haven't been free agents. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, so that doesn't seem odd to me. Uh, 86 million seems, well, it seems right about what I would have expected, I think. Well, definitely, it, it's what people expected. A month ago, it's, you know, MLB trade rumors predicted that Chapman would go to the Yankees for five years and 90 million. So, yeah, I mean, relative to where our expectations were heading into the offseason, I think it's very predictable. Relative to a year ago, six months ago, I'm not sure about that. How much of that inflated expectation had to do with the postseason that we saw and Andrew Miller and relievers just dominating the whole narrative for that month. You know, it's funny because if you didn't look, we didn't need the postseason <laughs> to this postseason to uh, have an inflated sense of closers. I mean, just look at what Chapman was traded for a few months before the postseason. It was a huge multi-year sacrifice mm -hmm. in order yeah. to get a guy primarily for the potential that one or two situations come up that nobody but him can handle. I mean, the Cubs were already going to uh, walk to the postseason. They were already going to have home field the entire way. They went and got Chapman because they foresaw that there would be one or two games out of the 11 wins that they needed in which 
they, you know, that somebody like Chapman or Jansen or maybe one or two other guys could handle. And so they went and got him. Uh, that was already there. What's funny is that Chapman blew that moment. Like he totally coughed <laughs> yeah. it up. And yeah. he, it is a good reminder that it is psychologically, it feels like Aradis Chapman is extremely different than Mark Melanson or than, you know, Pedro Strope for that matter. But in one inning, there's not a huge difference between them. There's a very small difference between them. And that nothing is certain, nothing is guaranteed, even with Chapman, uh, which is not to say that you shouldn't spend a lot on Chapman, especially if you're a team that isn't going to necessarily walk to the playoffs and needs to save, you know, 48 games in a year. But it is to say that uh, there's already a, a extremely romantic notion of what closers do that is not really necessarily all that logical. Uh, now, what Miller did was unusual, but it, yeah, I mean, that's that's one team. Other than that, we saw, at, you know, a, a little bit of, um, of uh, expansion of the closer's role into earlier moments in the game, but otherwise... Basically, it was the same, the same old stuff. And I saw I, long outings. We saw that's what I mean. Jansen, you saw, and we saw Chapman, who who didn't do very well. But. Right, you saw them coming in a little bit earlier. Instead of coming in in the eighth, there were what three outings, I think, where the closer came in in the seventh. Uh, so that is that is new. That is interesting. I still sort of feel like though the that the moment that well, I guess that the that the cause for this current moment that we're having with relievers has much less to do with the 2016 postseason or Andrew Miller and more to do with the Royals, uh, more to do with the idea of having uh, two or three of the six best relievers in baseball instead of having only one in your bullpen. And so uh, to me, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, the Yankees basically did uh, exactly what they did last offseason, except I guess they don't have Andrew Miller anymore. But I mean, it made even... In a sense, it made even less sense last offseason, except that Chapman was a um, was a distressed asset, and they could get him for cheap. But they've they've already shown that they like having two or more elite relievers to lengthen their bullpen, uh, mm-hmm. and it seems fairly natural to me. So, if the Cubs had lost that game after the Davis homer off Chapman, do you think he gets the same contract? Yeah, I do. Okay. I mean, it, it, I guess if I said no, then I'd be saying that. The Yankees are aren't smart. That like they like, right. What does mm-hmm. what does Ben Zobris double have to do with Aroldis Chapman's value? Yeah, no, nothing. Okay. So yeah, I think well, so a couple things I think have happened. I think Saber people used to reflexively dismiss how much teams paid for relievers and say it was a mistake. And if you look at the various wars, they will still say that teams are paying too much for wins from relievers, but now you don't really see anyone kind of clinging to that dogmatic line. You see people saying, well, yes, but if you look at this study and that study, it seems like maybe there is some extra impact of having a high high leverage reliever and also war is not accounting for playoffs. And, and like legitimately, if the playoffs are going to look more and more like they have the last couple of years. This past postseason was the, I mean, this past season was the highest percentage of innings pitched in the regular season by relievers. And then it jumped way up in the postseason, even relative to 2015's postseason. So starters were getting hooked earlier and earlier. And so there is a legitimate case to be made that if you are a team that is pretty confident that it's going to be going to the playoffs, that 
a reliever really is much more valuable than the regular season war, we'll say, because he has an outsized impact in games that really matter at the end of the year. So there is a, a justification that you can make now that is sort of saber friendly and every team is saber friendly. So I think that is part of it. It's it's that these prices are coming up for relievers, but it's a result of a few different trends that are making that seem more sensible. I just saw, I, I found a very sad table, Ben. It's um, 2007 relief pitcher salary rankings mm. and uh, the highest salary listed is Matt Cain. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. It's very depressing. <laughs> David Robertson, I guess, would have been the closest thing to an yeah. inning lead. And I guess you could make the case. What did he get? I forget. Four and 48, four and, four and 48 maybe? Mm-hmm. Maybe four and right. 52. Yeah, I think four and 48. Yeah. And he wasn't your classic flamethrower closer, and he still did well. He had, he, was right. coming off, he was coming off of uh, you know his, his worst year. Yeah, right. All right. So that's Chapman. And... I don't know if there's any larger takeaway from from the other moves. I mean, Dave Dombrowski continues to do the Dave Dombrowski thing. When he was young, he was good at building up farm systems. And now in this stage of his career, he's good at tearing them down for for good reasons, hopefully, theoretically. And he left a lot of wins behind him with that tattered farm system in Detroit. And he is doing the same thing in Boston. He has traded half of the Red Sox top 10 prospects since he took over, which was not that long ago. It was August of last year. And I think half of the other guys on that list either took steps back or got hurt, or maybe he would have traded them too. But I guess that's... The team is sort of Dombrowski-proof to a certain extent just because of Bogarts and Betts and Bradley, and those guys will be around regardless. But... I have detected mixed feelings from Red Sox fans about this just because he's kind of just trading away all of Charrington's prospects and and Theo and Charrington had that at least stated philosophy. They didn't always follow it perfectly, but of trying to build a winner that was also a player development machine and having a really good farm system and also having a really good big league team, which seems doable if you're a, a big market team, successful team. So he is clearly going one way and not the other, and maybe Red Sox fans would have been more receptive to that before they won a few World Series when they would have done anything for one than they are now when making the playoffs is really the important thing, and adding Chris Sale helps you make the playoffs, but they probably would have made the playoffs anyway, and now he only makes them a little bit more likely to win the World Series once they're there, whereas if, say, Moncada had panned out for the Red Sox, then... Maybe he would have made them more likely to make the playoffs for years to come. I will, I mean, I, I'm, this is not an original idea or anything like that, but in defense of Dombrowski or the argument, not in defense, the argument in favor of this is that the point of prospects is not to develop prospects necessarily, it's to get major league wins and and however you do that can serve your, your final goal. I mean, there's not any rule that says that your prospects have to play for you to be valuable to you. Uh, and a lot of teams have made a lot of profit trading prospects. I I mean, I don't know. I'm somewhat, I, I'm not even necessarily saying that I take this position in this specific case, but I remember, you know, a very long time of Brian Sabian winning, building winning teams by trading prospects who went away and never turned into anything. 
uh, mm-hmm. until the day that they did. Uh, and, <laughs> and then things got sad. But, but I mean, he, I remember there was just this long list of prospects who were, you know, name prospects that had gone away and sh- had major league careers that were not that interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, you you know, you you use your currency how, however you need to. I wonder how, I feel like Chris Sale is somewhat divisive right now, more than he certainly was a year ago. I think he's great. I think he's, I don't know, maybe the fourth or fifth best pitcher in baseball, uh, mm-hmm. maybe. And so I uh, would be thrilled to trade for him. Uh, I also think that the pitching to contact narrative that he and the White Sox were pushing early in the year, I think it's just a lie. I think that he doesn't throw as hard anymore. And I don't, I don't think there was a, I, I think maybe there was a strategy once he realized he wasn't throwing as hard to maybe adjust a little bit. But I don't think that he was intentionally not throwing as hard. And that can be something that derails careers. And it can be something that doesn't derail careers. Uh, and Chris Sale had a great year last year. So it's you know far too early to say that his has been derailed, but it is a you know it is a thing about him right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know the the pitching to contact stories started in spring training, so it wasn't as if they just sort of retconned their way to that or, or used it after the fact. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe he showed up at spring training not throwing as hard or something, but it started pretty early, and he did throw more in the strike zone more often in the strike zone and threw more fastballs and did things that you would do, I guess, if you were trying to pitch for pitch for contact. And I, I don't know whether he would say that it worked if it was an intentional thing. He did pitch more innings than he's ever pitched in a single season. And he was obviously still really good. So I will be curious to see what he looks like early next year, because if it was purely a conscious choice, then maybe it's something the Red Sox would want him to undo. Not that he was in any way ineffective. So yeah, that'll be interesting. That that does change your outlook for him pretty significantly. So I don't know that I, I'm fully on board the conspiracy cover-up theory, <laughs> but <laughs> it's possible. Yeah. And I'm probably overstating the extent to which I disregard the narrative. I just don't really see it as, I guess, regardless of, maybe a better way of putting it is, regardless of whether the plan was the plan and whether it was intentional and so on, I don't believe that he was throwing less hard by design. Uh-huh. Uh, okay. I well, think he was throwing less hard by the result of physics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely rare to see someone choose not to throw as hard as he can. So that should make you a little bit skeptical, but I don't know. It wasn't, I don't think it was like a, a gradual decline that had been happening and it did start early in the year before the season started. So I don't know. There's probably more information out there, but yeah, I think you're right what you were saying about the trade. Everyone always writes that now and I always feel like writing that, but I don't have a good source to cite. Do you have a good source about like when you say, well, the team that gets the superstar usually ends up winning the trade. That's sort of like an accepted truth, but I don't know that I've seen the research or I, I wouldn't know where to, to link to it other than just anecdotal evidence. So I don't know if someone knows of a good study on that, that I can link to in future articles, please send it to us. Bill Vex specifically says the opposite. Oh, he does? Huh. Uh, not exactly. I, he he refers to trading a $200 dog for $200 cats as a push. 
<laughs> okay. All right. So since you can get your bit of Adam Eaton banter in, we can talk about Adam Eaton. And uh, I like Adam Eaton a lot. Do you? I, yeah. Like I, that much? Do you like him this much? I don't like him like Norieoki much, but I, I like him a lot. I feel like I think it was because, and maybe I've said this on the podcast before, but in 2013, when we were putting out the BP prospect list, he was not on it, which yeah. seemed insane <laughs> to me. Yeah. And like, I didn't do anything about it. <laughs> I didn't, <laughs> I didn't, I mean, I, I talked to, I don't know, whoever it was, Jason at the time about yeah. it, but I don't know, like BP editors don't generally meddle with the, the prospect staff's lists. And so I didn't either, but it seemed nuts to me, not like knowing anything really detailed about Adam Eaton, other than the fact that he was already <laughs> in the major leagues and playing really well, <laughs> which yeah. seems like maybe you're one of the best hundred people if you can do that. So yeah, that perplexed me. And I guess that was just a symptom of him getting underrated for the reasons why guys like him get underrated. He's, you know, maybe not super toolsy and he's good at a bunch of things and not amazing at any one thing and, and that kind of thing. And I like sticking up for that type of player. So maybe Nationals fans are disappointed that they didn't get sale. Maybe they're disappointed that they didn't get McCutcheon because he is much more famous and a bigger name. Although at this point, I think you'd probably rather get Eaton, right? If only, if not purely on a performance basis, certainly on a team control basis, Eaton is signed for like five more years at really reasonable rates. So, and he can actually play good outfield defense, although much better in a corner thus far than in center. Anyway, what was your Adam Eaton talking point? I wanted to know whether you had any speculation about Bryce Harper's tweet. Oh, his wow, whether it was a a good kind of wow or a bad kind of wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. I, I feel like if you were celebrating, you would elaborate right? Like if you were really pumped about this move, you would say, and he did follow up on it, right? Well, yeah. something about Eaton, but... You can read that however you want, depending on what you think of his original original tweet, right? I mean, it took him 14 minutes to follow up, Uh and it was a... Yeah, he wrote, welcome to DCAE, let's get it done, hashtag nationals, which you could very easily say that he just, he is not a, he does not tweet uh, the way that we tweet. He tweeted for a minute and then he went away and then he thought I'll tweet again and that was that. Uh, or you could say, wow, in 14 minutes, somebody with the Nationals was able to send him a text message saying, hey, that tweet is getting misread. You should clarify it or something. And, and Bryce Harper realized yeah. that he should uh, yeah. clarify or un- maybe unclarify it, depending on what his intention was. So Harper is, I feel like, generally speaking, players like major leaguers and they don't like prospects they like they think that the whole prospect game is a sham trading from your uh, roster to get young players is almost always unpopular uh, in a clubhouse however and so normally i mean it's it's a no-brainer that if a team that sees itself as a competitor or even if it doesn't trades prospects for a good veteran that is going to be a popular move that is what players like however I wonder if Bryce Harper is the opposite because Bryce Harper is, he is the ultimate prospect and the Mm -hmm. ultimate prospect made good. And I wonder Mm -hmm. if all of his life experiences have taught him. 
it's not so long ago that he could forget that easily. Right. I was I was just wondering if is he actually is it conceivable? I don't think it is because he was always playing with people who are five years older than him. But is it conceivable that he even played in the same circuit with Giolito, like the same travel ball sh- uh, or showcase uh, sort of circuit? Probably not, because Harper was uh, was so often playing against older kids and Giolito's year two younger, but they're both West Coast. They both would have been like, you know, at 14, 13, 14, 15. It's conceivable that they would have known each other. So anyway, uh, Harper's past complicates things a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think if not for that, I would definitely, well, yeah, I mean, I think with the average major leaguer, I would think it was a good wow, probably. <laughs> but and Giolito was on the team, so he's he's not just like a, an abstract name on a prospect list. He's he was in the clubhouse for a lot of the year. He wasn't particularly good, but he was there. True. So he has some major league aura to him. I don't know. Adam Eaton doesn't strike me as the sort of player that you say wow about. <laughs> I mean, I might say wow. But yeah, but it doesn't. <laughs> right? Typical... He's never he's never made an all star team. Yeah. And, you know, all his stats uh, are acronyms. <laughs> so yeah. uh, it does seem like you don't say, wow, he could, you know, it's also possible that it was less about giving up Giolito and so on. Like If it was an unhappy, wow, it was less about giving up the prospects and more about, oh, well, we've just spent three days hearing McCutcheon and Chris Sale rumors. And now yeah. we get this 5'8 dude whose nickname is Scrappy or something like that. Of course, his, his, his nickname is Sp- Spanky, right? I think, but but of course he wouldn't he wouldn't know his nickname because he, he's only Adam Eaton. He would only know that it was something embarrassing, and so uh, so it might be like, oh wow, that's all we've got. Like he knows that they've got this package that they're shopping for superstars with, and it turns out to be Adam Eaton, and that's the wow. Like it's it's yeah. less about giving up the prospects and more about giving up McCutcheon. In fact, yeah, maybe that yeah, maybe that's the best way to think about it. If it was a critical wow it's also very possible that it's not a critical wow but i sort of feel critical wow yeah i think i lean slightly in that direction too but does harper do that is there any recent history of of that i feel like yes maybe i'm confusing it with the like stanton john carlos stanton that's that's what i was just thinking of Yeah. yeah let's see i'm gonna google uh bryce harper criticizes management no 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 i don't no i don't say we criticize nationals fans oh right yeah which is you know maybe it's the same sort of thing oh questioned his manager at one point but that was a few years ago so it's uh, somewhat out of character maybe it maybe it's out of character maybe it's not this is all speculative Mm-hmm. All right. Anyway, I uh, as to the trade itself, I wrote a piece about Andrew McCutcheon that came out yesterday. And as part of the research for this, I looked at all the extensions that had been signed during the extension boom. You know, we used to talk a lot about extensions when they went from being a, an occasional, you know, pre-arb extension specifically. When they went from being a thing that the Indians and the Rays did sometimes to being a thing that every team did with every one of their stars and their young stars. And so I looked at five years of extensions for players who sign them 
four or fewer years of service time, extensions four years or longer, including options, and extensions that bought out at least one free agent year, So, which is basically a way of saying these are young players who signed long deals that would keep them with their team for longer than they otherwise would have been with their team. And we're closing in on half of those players getting traded during the extension and usually with many years, multiple years left in the extension. And it, it just struck me as very interesting to see how the extension is not actually about keeping your player longer. It is just about turning them into a more valuable asset that you can move. And this is not a, you know, this is not a bad guy thing or anything like that. But it was very interesting to me that that this is what the extensions have turned into movable assets, the contracts are movable assets, of course. And um, so with with Sale and Eaton, Sale had three more years of club control, Eaton had five, and it does seem to me, a maybe, I haven't gone this next step, but it does seem like maybe a real change now that a lot more teams just sort of look at it as, well, if we're not going to be good this year, then this player is worth more to somebody else than he is to us, even if we are going to be good the next year. Uh, mm-hmm. So like Eaton... Obviously, the White Sox intend to be winners within five years, probably Mm -hmm. within two years, but they trade him anyway because, you know, why have a guy around when you're trying to suck? And it is odd to me. Not odd. It is a thing to observe and remark upon, I guess. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because the White Sox don't feel like they're that far off. They had a terrible farm system. They did for 20 years. Of course, they also weren't always that good, but they had a, you know, they had a core of Abreu, Quintana, Sale, and Eaton, who are four, you know, extremely good players, all under club control for a very long time. And I haven't, you know, I, I have not totally gamed out the way that I would have handled that organization and I can see the case for rebuilding and they clearly weren't going to be good next year I don't think and clearly their efforts to uh, jump a tier in the last two off seasons ago uh, mostly and a little bit last year clearly those failed but it seems like they failed without much long-term damage Uh, they it was mostly just money they weren't seven-year deals or anything like that it wasn't uh, further gutting their their uh, farm system particularly uh, and it seemed like this was a team that had a, 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 you know, a pretty great core of four guys and might very plausibly say, OK, well, if we take this year off, if we just if we save up for 2018, 2018's a target. And yet just punting even one year necessitates trading two guys who had eight years of club control and were you know, arguably your two best players. Mm-hmm. Interesting yeah. is all interesting. Yeah. I mean, they're probably not done, right? They're going to do more. And so they probably will be bad for for, I don't know, a couple of years, right? Unless they really get lucky and, and hit on all of their prospects. I think they put themselves in as good a position as one could doing what they're doing. But yeah. All right. Anything else you are dying to talk about? Nope. Okay, then. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Five listeners who have done so already, Brian Kelly, Ethan Lutsky, Michael Christopher Tortoro, Josh Ford, and Joseph Blumenthal. 
Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild, and you can rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. I have a new episode of the Ringer MLB show up. Michael Bauman and I also talked about some winter meetings moves, and we interviewed Eric Thames, new Brewers first baseman who just got back from basically being Barry Bonds in Korea for a few years. He has a really interesting story. You can contact me and Sam via email at podcast at baseballperspectives.com or by messaging us through Patreon. We will be back soon. I